Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the Native American Studies channel for the New Books Network. We're here today with uh, Kate Fuligar, recently Associate Professor in Modern History at Macquarie University, as well as uh, Michael McDonnell, um, a Professor of History at the University of Sydney. Uh, and we're going to be discussing their new volume, Facing Empire, Indigenous Experiences in a Revolutionary Aged, published this year by Johns Hopkins University Press. Welcome, Professors Fuligar and McDonnell. Thanks for having us. Thank you. First off, we're going to uh, discuss this uh, lovely cover. Can you uh, touch upon the cover itself and your reasons for selecting it? Yeah, I can talk to that because we did have a bit of a debate, and I think I was the one, Mike, who found this one eventually. Um, It's by John Weber, the official artist on Cook's Third Pacific Voyage. Um, it was interesting actually trying to find an image because we did it, it actually is quite hard to find an image that reflected the kind of active indigenous agency that we wanted to talk about in this volume. So we discarded quite a few options um, and a couple of the press's own options. Um, but we came up with this one because we thought it did have a focus on indigenous people rather than on the kind of imperial incursion that they're facing. Um, so we thought that would be appropriate for this kind of volume. Great. So in your introduction, you ask, what did the age of revolution look like to indigenous peoples? What connections did they make between themselves, newcomers, and other indigenous peoples? And what lessons were learned? So in that context, why and how did you subsequently bring together emerging and senior scholars of often compartmentalized regions in order to put their work into conversation with one another in a more expansive comparative framework to answer these questions? And why title the collection Facing Empire? Thanks, Ryan. I'll take a stab at this one. Um, I guess, look, Kate and I found ourselves at the University of Sydney by sort of accident, I guess, um, around about the same time. And we both were working on books about the Age of Revolution and the British Empire, both looking at um, the late 18th century. Mine was about the American Revolution. Kate's was about uh, indigenous visits to Britain, but largely focused on the debates that they engendered among um, British politics and British uh, society about the nature of empire. We found ourselves uh, good friends. I think I was assigned as Kate's mentor at the time as she was uh, just beginning uh, at the University of Sydney. Um, We also found ourselves parents, new parents um, at the same time. But it took us a while to realize that we were both interested in indigenous peoples at the same uh, time, the late 18th century, Um, but that we didn't really have much of a kind of a shared historiography to refer to when thinking and talking about indigenous peoples, even in that same period, even in that within that British Empire that we both uh, were deeply enmeshed in, in in our studies, and. Uh, Kate was very interested in Aboriginal and Pacific uh, uh, Pacific Islanders. Uh, I was interested in Native Americans in North America for our kind of second book projects. But as I said, there really wasn't a lot of overlap in terms of the kinds of um, reference points, historiographical reference points, um, that we could reach to uh, and really a, a kind of a shared vocabulary that we could use to talk about Indigenous peoples uh, across the British Empire. And so we thought, look, it'd be really interesting to try and and think about this period that we both were really interested in, that we were both approaching from uh, more and more from indigenous uh, perspectives as much as we could, and uh, and to try and kind of think about what this place and this time, the place British Empire and the time, the late 18th century into the early 19th century, might look... uh, like from indigenous perspectives. Now, 
that's quite a big ask, and we can talk a little bit later uh, about the um, about the scope of the, the the project. But we realized we couldn't do this alone, um, and probably the first best step we could take was to actually bring in a lot of experts to try and help us think through some of those uh, connections and parallels and comparisons uh, that we really wanted to just have a look at and examine and, and really um, start a conversation about, to think um, about what this um, world might look like from the perspective in, of indigenous peoples across the British Empire. So we thought, look, let's get a bunch of people together. We thought we'd, we'd love to, to have a look at the work of some of the younger or emerging scholars uh, of the day. Plus, we knew there was some great work being done by, by middle career and senior scholars um, whose, whose work has really pushed us to think very differently. Uh, and we thought we'd bring them all together in this collection um, as a way, as I said, of, a, of, of generating a first step, of, of first uh, conversation. And I think the title came to us fairly easy, Facing Empire, fa- fairly easy from an from a, uh, a early stage. Both of us have been deeply influenced and, um, and uh, have been very uh, admiring of Daniel Richter's work, Facing Empire. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, I'm just going to completely forget the title now. Um, we just superseded it. Facing East from Indian Country. Facing the Native History. Facing East from Indian Country, a Native History of Early America that was published in 2001, I think it was. And uh, that book came about just as I was teaching, um, starting to teach Native American history. It was deeply influential, I think, particularly for colonial American historians, but I think elsewhere too, as, as Kate's uh, response to it probably testifies uh, to. And um, uh, Dan really in that book tried to kind of push early American historians to rethink our notions of the kind of foundational narrative, the colonial American history of the United States in a way that really forefront fronts uh, indigenous experiences and indigenous agency in that uh, history. And I think it's had a profound influence on colonial American historians. Uh, it's certainly worked its way through uh, into the 19th century for American history as well. And uh, we really wanted to pay homage to that uh, work, that influential work, and also to think uh, about that kind of approach and that perspective in a, in a greater kind of imperial uh, setting. Uh, so we thought we'd use the title Facing Empire, uh, indigenous experiences in the revolutionary age. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm just going to maybe add to that that uh, I think we had discussed some of these ideas with um, Professor Rector uh, when he came to Australia or when we saw him in Washington one time. Um, and he, you know, had, had, had kind of endorsed it and said he was excited about the idea. So he generously wrote a forward um, to the book for us. Um, and it's definitely true that um, I had been personally inspired by Facing East. Um, my earlier book had included Native American studies, although I really was interested in bridging that already with um, thinking about Pacific Islander studies. Um, but just to reflect back on something that Mike has just said, I think it's also true that uh, Indigenous-centred scholars from my part of the world, the, the South Pacific, um, were not necessarily familiar with that book, and it really goes to this point that we were trying to raise that some of the that that, that we're trying to generate some conversations amongst people who are who are interested in the same arguments about indigenous imperial relations, but had not necessarily been in contact with each other. Um, so by forging that conversation, we thought that actually we might be able to find some really productive and revealing connections between our historical actors. Why did you decide to deal only with indigenous experiences of the British Empire? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, it, in some ways, I'm not quite sure where the emphasis was there. Only on indigenous experiences or only the British Empire? Um, we can perhaps talk about the former. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. we, we can perhaps talk about the former in a minute, um, which I think will be, become more clear. Um, but in terms of limiting it uh, to the British Empire, because we really did, we began our discussions by thinking about the really vast array of different kinds of indigenous relations with different European empires throughout this critical period, the Age of Revolution. And that was perhaps 
you know, ref- reflected by the fact that Kate was interested in the French, uh, French relations with indigenous peoples in the Pacific. Uh, I was interested in uh, Spanish relations with indigenous peoples in South America, Latin America, um, and the Caribbean. Um, and, and so we were all very much aware that, um, that, you know, in, if, if we, if we use the age of revolution as the driving kind of, uh, framing device, then really to do this subject justice, we would, you know, have to kind of canvas a, a much broader array of different sorts of relations. Ultimately, we decided that was really just perhaps one step too far. Um, and decided that we should probably stick to the one empire that we knew best, at least. And, uh, and that in that one empire, uh, was sort of big enough, I think. Uh, and, and there were, you know, hundreds of different kinds of, um, case studies and places and, uh, different kinds of relationships we could explore within the British empire itself. So we had to make the decision to sort of, um, contain it to the British Empire, if that's indeed what you meant by the question, I think. Can you explain your approach to defining indigenous in this collection, addressing, if you can, self-claimed as well as community-endorsed indigeneity, intersecting with iterations of empire much broader than merely settler colonialism? Yes. um, Well, we did have to kind of uh, agree on some definition of indigenous um, when we wanted to kind of... uh, gathered together our collaborators and think about, you know, what it meant to put that on the title. Um, I know some some scholars like to really veer away, particularly from a hard definition, but we really did think that it was um, needed in our case. So uh, thinking about the way that other historians have, have defined Indigenous, um, there, are, there are a range. Um, we we um, take the point that uh, Christopher Bailey made many years ago that in many ways the term Indigenous is invented by empires rather than, of course, Indigenous peoples. And it's particularly invented um, in the revolutionary age, the age that we're interested in. So we can kind of think of indigeneity um, in terms of being a comparable category and, um, you know, a a category that is knowable across different fields um, as really an invention of the non-Indigenous. But, you know, because Indigenous does actually have an important political salience today, we thought that was a bit of a cop-out really to use now. So we did really want to engage with thinking about um, the definition of uh, Indigenous as an Indigenous kind of owned category. So really uh, we thought that the, the, the people or the organisations that have approached um, this, this question most sensitively include the, uh, the really the, kind of the peak body for Indigenous Studies, NASA, Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, um, also the UN actually. Um, shares NASA's definition, which includes something about um, uh, a a, a self-kind of identification or a community um, endorsement in the present age, as well as some kind of um, uh, nod to its historical formation. So we wanted those both kind of present day and historical um, ideas coming together. Uh, so really, you know, the, the, what, what we ended up saying in terms of its relationship to the British Empire was that they were first peoples who lived across the kind of Atlantic, Pacific and Indian Oceans who had resources that imperialists were interested in and who would be identifiable to Indigenous peoples living there today. So kind of a three-part, I suppose, um, definition. Uh, what that definition was not, in, in, my, in, in some ways it might be better to think about you know, the, the negative form, um, was it was not necessarily just easily defined as people who owned the land first before imperialists came. Because I think land is a problematic thing to, to, uh, to, to reduce Indigenous peoples to. It doesn't take into account Indigenous peoples who are removed, who, um, who colonise themselves, um, who, uh, who, 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 who are knowingly or unwittingly mobile. So, um, so land wasn't quite sufficient, but resources, um, resources that are desired by newcomers, by outsiders, seem to get more at the kind of the crux of the historical problem. In terms of descent, you know, in terms of the present day identification with Indigenous actors, um, we were not necessarily going to go by kind of a genealogical 
kind of a, a medical genealogical um, system because that really in many ways you know perpetuates colonial thinking but we are interested in kind of a cultural genealogical identification which is is, is I think how indigenous people today would identify descent that they would see that descent involves people who um, are connected over the eras by historical practices um, far more than by simple blood. So, uh, yeah, so, so this is how we kind of arrived at, arrived at it in the end. Uh, our contributors produced essays um, for us that really exemplified this kind of array of resource-owning um, peoples. Um, quite a lot of them were um, defined or linked very strongly to land, um, particularly Bill Gamage's essay on Australian Aborigines, for example, but we had Joshua Reed talking about marine space as the key resource, you know, that 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 that, that linked imperialists with Indigenous peoples. We we had Tony Ballantyne talking about the convertible soul as actually the most desired resource. So resources and present day kind of linkages were were our dual. Um, threads for that definition. Why did you decide to focus on the age of revolution? What were the outcomes of assessing indigenous perspectives on periodization, ideas, continental events, and global conflicts during this revolutionary age? Yes. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, in, in the first instance, I think uh, I've always been interested in the American Revolution. My first book was about the American Revolution. I was interested in uh, the age of revolution as it's uh, unfolded, particularly in the historiography of the last kind of 10 or 20 years. Um, and, uh, and of course, it was uh, Kate's interest in the late 18th century in, in Britain inevitably brought her, I think, uh, to this interest in the age of revolution. But I think initially, um, really, I was struck by the kind of um, possibilities inherent in the age of revolution, uh, particularly for indigenous peoples. My own work on North America had suggested that native peoples had played a really important and substantial uh, uh, part in the uh, revolutionary process there, both in terms of triggering the Seven Years' War and then in part triggering the American Revolution, but also then shaping the kind of conflicts between European powers and between native peoples and Europeans, um, and um, really played an integral part in that age of revolution, in part it, because uh, rivalries between European powers in that period were intense and they were able to kind of play off different European powers. And in the first instance, I was struck um, by the little that I knew about um, the history of the Cape Colony, and I think that was where I certainly first uh, started thinking about a more expansive uh, age of revolution for indigenous peoples in that the, uh, you know, I, I was struck by the kind of parallels uh, that occurred when the British took over from um, the Dutch at the Cape and were immediately faced with a, uh, an indigenous uprising, the Koza Wars of the late 18th and early uh, 19th centuries. And I started reading my way into that literature and and really found very few references to um, the literature on colonial North America. And I thought this was quite strange given, you know, both the temporal uh, uh, relationship um, and also the parallels in terms of uh, the, 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 the colonial situation and the, the, the attempted imposition of colonial rule followed by indigenous uprisings that sort of reset that colonial um, relationship with indigenous peoples, and uh, and then I think at that stage I moved to Australia and realised, oh gosh, this is you know the, there's an even the greater set of uh, different sorts of relationships that um, that the British are developing uh, with indigenous peoples at the very same time that you know these uh, events in the Cape were happening, and and simultaneously and and also not long after. Uh, the British had learned some hard lessons in North America in terms of indigenous relations, and so uh, I think uh, I think certainly from my perspective, uh, my mobility, my my wife is from South Africa, so that got me interested in the, in the Cape Colony in the first place, and then my move to Australia really opened my eyes to 
a kind of a moment um, that was quite critical in the British Empire and kind of a much more expansive idea of an age of revolution. Um, and I think that um, it certainly has helped us to think about the age of revolution even more expansively than, than I think scholars have uh, become attuned to doing already. Certainly, first of all, uh, doing this collection, putting this collection together made us very much aware that, uh, of course, the, the age of revolution was also the age of the settler revolution or the origins of the settler revolution. And uh, that settler revolution historiography also had to be set alongside this age of revolution uh, literature. So I think that that then immediately stretches the periodization, addressing the second part of your uh, question, really stretches our, our kind of uh, conception of the age of revolution as a effectively a continuing revolution because the settler revolution that um, particularly, I think, uh, I, I, Kate might be able to correct me, but certainly uh, it's a much more kind of common term uh, in in these parts and, and in the, um, in Australia and New Zealand, um, that settler revolution also has um, connected with the idea of settler colonialism, and I think uh, most of us you know can agree now that this is very much a kind of an ongoing um, set of relationships um, that are present in society today. So we started in the late 18th century. Uh, and I think in some ways uh, have to acknowledge after putting this collection together that really this period perhaps isn't quite over yet. Why did you organize the volume into three sections entitled Pathways, Entanglements, and Connections? Can you elaborate on these sectional divisions? Yeah, I'll take your first stab at this, but Kate, you might be able to um, add something to it because you have a much better memory than I do. Um, but my recollection was that we were quite interested in, in uh, you know, a, an array of uh, different people's work in different places uh, on the British Empire. And um, we solicited uh, uh, work from them and told them what we were interested in doing and asked them for abstracts, uh, asked them what they might be able to contribute to a collection like this. And as the abstracts came in, it might have been the first drafts, um, but as the as the work came in, it really I think it just the, the, those sections sort of came to us. We realized that in, you know that it wasn't quite going to work in a chronological way um, because indigenous peoples encountered and uh, and met with Europeans at different periods, different times across sort of the rough period, say, 1760 to, to, to 1830 or 1840. Um, so a chronological approach wasn't really going to work. Uh, we weren't that happy with a geographical approach because then that sort of had the effect of segregating these different historiographies or different um, histories from each other again. Uh, but as I said, as the contributions came in, we realized that all of the indigenous peoples that uh, our contributors were looking at really um, faced a kind of a similar kind of cycle of relations or trajectory of relations. Um, of course, one of these were sort of new encounters um, with different peoples, um, whether that took place in uh, the Great Lakes in, in the 1760s with the Anishinaabe and, and, and Britain, uh, and British officials, or it could take place uh, in Australia uh, after 1788, um, and so on. And uh, so there was a sort of a, a, a common feature in terms of the, 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 the original encounters between Europeans and indigenous peoples, and then a, a, a kind of a, a complex process of what we've called entanglements, um, in which Europeans and indigenous peoples um, uh, really tried to kind of figure out what the best way forward was for um, uh, their new relationships, whether that was hostility or cooperation, trade, diplomacy, warfare. Um, indigenous peoples drew Europeans into their existing kind of 
networks of relations, and uh, and there there on followed this this sort of long period of, of what we call entanglements. So that's the second section of the book where we delve into some of these kinds of relationships um, and and histories between Europeans and indigenous peoples. Um, and then I think uh, across the contributions as well, we noticed that particularly towards sort of uh, as, as relations matured between uh, Europeans and indigenous peoples, we noticed more and more connections developing, connections and more obvious comparisons uh, between uh, those relationships and um, across the British Empire, but also um, in rare instances, uh, connections between the different indigenous groups that we were that we were looking at, uh, and and their awareness of other indigenous groups uh, in other places, their absorption of other indigenous groups um, uh, and and relations with indigenous groups, their 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 forging of alliances with different indigenous groups. Uh, so all of those lent themselves to kind of an idea that. Uh, towards the end of the period that we were looking at, particularly the kinds of connections between indigenous peoples were thickening up. And I should also mention um, that as we were uh, as we were progressing with the edited collection, we were really pleased to see two other edited collections come out uh, uh, at the same time or, or very uh, close to each other, um, both on um, comparing indigenous relations across the uh, British Empire, um, but for a later period and for the 19th century. And I think we know, you know, we, we sort of know a little bit more about the kinds of connections that um, indigenous peoples began to forge in the 19th and the 20th century. And because of groups uh, and organizations like NISA, the Native American Indigenous Studies Association, we also know that those relationships have continued to thicken up and, 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 you know, really exponentially explode in the, in the kind of late 20th century. Um, but what we saw in the age of revolution was at least the origins of some of those connections. So those sections really kind of, um, suggested themselves as we, uh, got the contributions in. Yeah, that, that, that's how I do remember it. Um, the thing that I mostly remember is that uh, some initial feedback we got um, said that uh, that maybe we should um, clump things together in terms of geography, but really that did go against the, the the main principle of the entire volume, which was to think about what comparison can make you see anew. Uh, so we did resist the idea of clumping people together in terms of geography, and we decided to. to um, we group group them rather in terms of these patterns, as Mike has explained. And I'll I'll just give a shout out to the other two collections because I think they were really um, path breaking collections as well. Um, Jane Carey and Jane Lydon's Indigenous Networks Mobility Connections in Exchange came out in 2014, and Zoe Laylaw's and Alan Lester's Indigenous Communities and Settler Colonialism came out in 2015. And again, both of those deal with a slightly later period, but I think um, kind of. Uh, also follow it in this tradition of thinking about empire comparatively and thinking about it from indigenous perspectives too. So, Professor McDonald, you authored the second essay in the collection entitled The Indigenous Architecture of Empire. How and why did Anishinaabe strategies to reinstate credit and wintering over at forts help illuminate how much British imperial efforts in the Great Lakes were shaped by indigenous politics and trade practices. Can you also touch on why British traders were almost always dependent on the Indians in the context of Ottawa kinship systems? Yeah, uh, thank you for that question. I mean, the, look, my contribution drew a little bit from the book that I recently published, Masters of Empire, uh, in 2015. And, um, yeah, it was interesting to read the question that you posed I was like, gosh, um, that doesn't sound that exciting. Um, strategies to reinstate credit and wintering over. Um, but in fact, I think what I realized in putting together the book and, and then uh, extracting that and thinking about it in particular for the article uh, in the collection 
was really just how much we need to pay attention to kind of the the really the nitty gritty, the day to day, and the and the kind of the physical uh, and social uh, realities of um, of these relationships between the, in this case the Anishinaabe Odawa uh, and uh, incoming British officials, and I you know I had read a lot about the kind of the controversies about trade practices. One after another, uh, British officials sent to Michilla Mackinac, which is now Mackinac City up in uh, Michigan, um, which was a key kind of strategic uh, post uh, and and a strategic place uh, in terms of access to the Great Lakes and and further on to the Mississippi. Um, but the Odawa dominated that space. The Odawa, along with the set of kinship relations that really spread all the way across the lakes from about Montreal to present-day Minnesota. Uh, and those kinship relationships um, really allowed the Odawa and the Anishinaabe to exert their control over the lakes, the marine space of the lakes or the salt, uh, the freshwater space of the the lakes, um, but also allowed them to kind of control their relationships with Europeans. And in the first instance, of course, up in the Great Lakes, that meant dealing with the French. And over many years, the Anishinaabe uh, really dictated how their relationship with the French uh, was going to proceed. They invited, in fact, in the, in, in, in the end, they effectively coerced the French to establish a post amid them up in Michilimackinac, in part because that was a symbol of alliance with the French that the Anishinaabe could then use against their traditional enemies and and a foe that they feared much more than the French, which who were the Lakota uh, to their west. Um, they established a pattern of relations that really meant that the French every year had to pay uh, rent for that post. They had to bring up provisions and presents to uh, to pay that rent to the Anishinaabe. And then the Anishinaabe would trade with them, but again, on their terms. It was interesting, too, They the Anishinaabe wouldn't let the French grow much corn uh, and wouldn't let them fish too much. Uh, and they very clearly laid that out in part because the Anishinaabe wanted to sell that to them. They wanted to sell fish and they wanted to sell corn and wanted the, the post, the French post, dependent on them. Um, they were happy to trade with them, but again, they had to trade with them on their own terms. And that meant a practice of extending credit, um, which effectively meant that traders at the uh, European traders at the beginning of the sort of the, 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 the trapping season in particular, the winter season, um, would supply families with the necessary provisions for the hunt, ammunition, gunpowder, um, knives, uh, sleds even, um, and uh, would extend them that those goods uh, in the form of credit. Uh, those families would disperse. Uh, Anishinaabe families from the Shilomackinac would head south in smaller family units. They would winter over uh, in, in warmer places near rivers but in places where they could still trap furs. Uh, and they would bring those furs back to Michilimackinac, where they would meet those traders again. Uh, and they owed the traders the fur, but they were also very aware that the traders couldn't extort just any old price for the, those goods. The traders had to uh, effectively develop a relationship with that particular family. And if he wanted a successful relationship, trading relationship with that family, had to deal honestly and fairly with them. Um, over time, some of those French traders eventually married into those families and effectively used the kind of kinship relations that were already existing among uh, the Anishinaabe uh, to kind of uh, to float their trading uh, practices in the Great Lakes. Now, when the British took over in 1760 and formally in 1763, they wanted to put an end to all of this sort of interference, what the, as they called it, um, of the of the individual individual traders, they feared, and it was partly based on their their um, experience further to the south. They feared that individual traders uh, would 
uh, ply native peoples with alcohol and then rip them off and extend credit, but then extort extort them uh, with low prices for their furs once they return. That didn't really happen in the northern Great Lakes because the traders were really very much dependent on those kinship relations, on those um, good relationships with Europeans. And I say dependent in, in part um, because of the difficult environmental circumstances. I don't know if you've ever been to Michilimackinac in the winter, but it's not a place that you want to be on your own uh, and and vulnerable. It's not an easy place to uh, to uh, to live, and um, and so uh, French traders and then British traders really realized that they were going to be dependent on those Anishinaabe families for their very existence, their very survival, but also, as I said, for um, for healthy trade. Um, and when the British took over, as I said, they wanted to stop that. They said, look, uh, we want to regulate the trade. You'll only be allowed to trade at the fort. We're not giving presents and provisions anymore. That's going to stop. Uh, and this resulted in a big uprising. Uh, we now call it Pontiac's War. Um, and the Anishinaabe Odawa were involved in that in a slightly unusual way. They uh, ended up effectively uh, rescuing the British commander and uh, the soldiers at the, the post, and then bringing them back to Montreal. And if we look at it in light of relationships with Europeans over the long uh, term, this is clearly in line with their common practice of actually wanting a post at Michilimackinac, but wanting it on their own terms. So there was a kind of a drama that was played out that demonstrated their power and influence in the region and that allowed them to say to the British, look, you can come back to the Great Lakes, but you're going to do it on our terms. And they clearly laid those out. They said, look, you're going to only bring up so many soldiers. They're not going to be allowed to grow corn, just like the French. They're not going to be allowed to fish as much as they want. You're going to be dependent on us for that. And if you want to trade with us, we're not going to do it at your post, at your fort. You're going to do it uh, on our terms. And that means coming out and wintering over with us, uh, supplying us with provisions on credit, and then we will um, uh, uh, supply furs in return for that. Uh, the British were very much against this, um, but in the end had to concede this, had to concede, uh, make these effectively these trade concessions. And of course, what was interesting is that the, the Anishinaabe and other native peoples in the region were forcing the British to kind of make these concessions about trading practices at the very same time that the British were trying to tighten up their control over trade with Europeans as well on the eastern seaboard, which of course led to the American Revolution eventually. But just as the British had to deal with a kind of completely different set of relationships and with a different outcome in the Great Lakes, it was a very different outcome on the eastern seaboard. Um, sorry, I've gone on for a long time there about the, 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 the details of um, trade and practices, trading practices of Michelle Mackinac. But I think the point is really to say that we often think of European traders uh, trading with native peoples as kind of um, agents of empire, as people who uh, were effectively cultivating the interests of empire. But I think when we look in the ground and we look from indigenous perspectives, we, we certainly realize that those traders were often working uh, uh, in in the interests of their Native American uh, relations rather than their European um, masters, if you like. Professor McDonald, can you compare and contrast the uh, Anishinaabe facing empire with other pathways in this section, if possible, uh, such as indigenous fire and no fire agrarian practices across Australia, the Fonte politics in West Africa, indigenous ecologies in Tahiti and Samoa, and the rule of the Wahhabi in the, in the rise of Bombay and Persian Ottoman realms in the Gulf. Just take a stab at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will. And I'll try and keep it a little bit shorter this time. Um, I think the best way to think about it, and, and I have been thinking about it um, since you sent those questions, um, is really to uh, think about European and indigenous relations as, as a kind of a, a, 
a house uh, or an ecosystem, perhaps house of many rooms or an ecosystem. I've been playing. We've been playing with this metaphor in terms of um, public history and community history in, in one of my classes this semester. But I think it might apply here as well. That is to say that when the British um, encountered peoples that were new to them in different places, they entered into a new ecosystem or a new house uh, where the architecture was quite different from what they were used to and differently arranged, differently arranged in different places, um, and were shaped by political um, relationships, the existing political relationships between indigenous peoples and their uh, you know, trading partners, their uh, rivals, um, shaped by the economic arrangements um, and resources of particular places, shaped by the environmental circumstances of different places. And those environmental um, factors were often shaped as well by indigenous peoples, as in Bill Gamage's um, Fire and No Fire Agrarian Practices. Indigenous peoples had managed the landscape, managed the land uh, for thousands of years. But when the British arrived, they weren't necessarily aware of how that land had been managed, who had managed it, um, and and what the implications were and what the consequences were. So they had to learn. Um, a, they were influenced by it. Um, certainly, as Bill has written in his chapter, uh, the British were drawn into that landscape in part because it reminded them of the kind of the country parks, the cleared lands that were cleared by the indigenous fire making, uh, reminded Europeans of indigenous part uh, of European parts, and therefore, in some sense, kind of made them much more friendly and welcoming. Um, uh, made the landscape much more friendly and welcoming to Europeans. Um, again, indigenous ecologies in Tahiti and Samoa um, effectively uh, created the circumstances in which the British and other European powers um, were tempted or not tempted. To, uh, uh, to to develop their interests in those particular places. And in West Africa, for example, uh, indigenous politics played a huge role in drawing the British in very reluctantly into kind of what, what some might have called internal disputes between the Fante and the Asante, their, their rivals. The Fante were under tremendous pressure from other indigenous groups uh, north to their north and they saw the British as a uh, as a kind of an opportunity to uh, uh, to create more alliances, to get more firepower, to um, push back against their own indigenous um, uh, rivals. And I think it's really important to 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 remember and to put at the forefront that uh, indigenous peoples everywhere didn't just see the British as uh, something to be repelled something to be resisted, um, but often fitted them in to their own kind of um, uh, history uh, and their own politics and tried to make the best use of them when they could. So uh, the second set of essays, can you compare and contrast how indigenous struggles in the Ohio Valley for the security of their homelands that slowed the march of empire quoting uh, Professor Colin Calloway, with entanglements resulting from varieties of labor reforms in the Southern African Cape, the interplay of the Christian missionary societies, Christian, Christianity and commerce with the Maori, and Australian indigenous perspectives that shaped the 1835 Batman's Treaty and the consequent mutilation of animals. Take a stab at it. Yeah, again, this speaks to sort of the, the really, the kind of the complex relationships that develop between Britain uh, and and British officials and indigenous peoples in different places um, beyond the kind of uh, pathways in which sort of those relationships were structured or shaped initially. And I think the key here is to remember that these relationships were really dynamic. They were two-way uh, or even multi-phonic, if you like. We often think of 
you know, European and indigenous relationships is a sort of a two-way street. And I think it's really important to kind of think about it as a dialogue um, or dialectic. Um, but of course, both the British were being shaped by outside external forces and indigenous peoples were being uh, shaped by their relationships with other indigenous peoples all around them. And so the, the way they were, we need to think about that in terms of their relationships with European powers. It's not just that kind of um, uh, two-way street. But these relationships were dynamic. Uh, they were multivocal. They were evolving. And uh, they also helped shape and change the British Empire um, as much as indigenous peoples. And again, we often think about the coming of Europeans and the invasion of different places and, uh, and, and settler colonialism as a kind of, uh, you know, as, as, as only kind of acting on indigenous peoples. And indigenous peoples were changed by that relationship, changed profoundly by that relationship. Now, that is often true, but we also need to kind of think about the ways that the British Empire and British people and Europeans who uh, um, dealt with indigenous peoples were shaped by that relationship as well. And we can think about that on the macro level, and that's what Colin Calloway does in his work. He looks at the different kinds of rivalries between Native peoples, between Native peoples and Europeans, and how that played out in terms of the politics between Britain and its colonies in the eastern seaboard. And then uh, a little bit later, after the American Revolution, about how that played out in terms of internal American politics uh, and how it shaped American politics in the early years of the new republic. And I think it's really important to kind of think about the diplomacy and the politics at play and the multivocal kind of voices um, that were shaping that relationship. But it also plays out, as Tony Ballantyne um, really details wonderfully in his essay, on the kind of the, the day-to-day um, relationships between that were forged between um, local indigenous chiefs, uh, um, uh, and, uh, and in his case, uh, Christian missionaries and the sorts of relationships they had to forge in order to, um, to simply, uh, to, in order to get what each side wanted. And so both missionaries and indigenous peoples were effectively changed by this coming together. Uh, because they had to negotiate a kind of a, 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 a space for each other in that, um, in that new world, in that entangled world, as Tony puts it in his work. Um, and in some cases, as, as uh, Robert Kenny has suggested in his essay, those entanglements led to quite you know, destructive uh, and deadly ends. And I think in his case... Um, you know, not only did the indigenous peoples of uh, Victoria, what is now the state of Victoria, um, you know, really come under both really come under uh, fire, uh, literally, um, uh, against Europeans and the arrival of the British, but that deteriorating relationship between indigenous peoples and, and the British also led to the end of what was a brief experiment in uh, treaty making in Australia. Uh, and the famous sort of Batman's Treaty of 1835 effectively uh, uh, was ruptured and the British never again, as far as I know, attempted to kind of um, make treaties with Aboriginal people here in Australia. Um, and again, had profound effects, profoundly um, uh, destructive effects, but effects nonetheless. So I think those entanglements that we talk about uh, in that section are really, again, on a kind of a macro and micro scale. And uh, we need to think about the ways that indigenous peoples shaped the British Empire as it evolved. Professor Fulagar, you authored the 10th essay in the collection entitled Envoys of Interest. How did brief biographies of the serious, ostensico, and uninterested Mai, particularly as they traversed England, help illuminate common collective actions shared between separate indigenous actors? Yes, so my um my, my chapter looked at two kind of uh, biographies that sort of set in comparison with each other. One was the Cherokee warrior Ostanako, and the other was the uh, Raiatean islander from the Tahitian archipelago called Mai, or sometimes called Omai. Uh, both of those um, 
figures travelled to Britain. Ostanako went in the 1760s and Mai went in the 1770s. And because of that, they'd both um, come up in my earlier research uh, about Indigenous visitors to Britain. Um, but increasingly, since I'd published my earlier research, I was interested in uh, the, the whole lives of these envoys, not just their um, not not just their kind of excursions across the world, um, and in, and in um, thinking about their full biographies, I was struck uh, by a couple of things. Um, one is that just simply doing biography of an indigenous person from cradle to grave, as we might call it, um, does have an interesting effect on the role of empire in their histories. It really uh, almost always reduces the the impact, the size, the importance or the significance of empire, um, which is quite salutary, I think, to imperial historians particularly. Um, but another thing that it did was to make me um, consider again the question of motivation for both of these envoys. Uh, traditionally, Ostinaco and my such as they appear in historiography, and the historiography is pretty thin for both, um, they're usually uh, rationalised as going to Britain for their own personal um, um, improvement or um, uh, self-advancement. Um, and, there, and, and there is some decent evidence to support those arguments. But when I put them together, I realised, or when I kind of thought about them both in the same frame, I realised that there were alternative um, explanations. One is that Ostinaco increasingly looks like he's always fighting for a wider collective. It's not about himself, but he's almost always um, fighting throughout his long life for his uh, particular town and then for his particular region, and by the time he's going to Britain for his entire kind of um, uh, uh, nation, uh, even though that's not really a word that's used for the Cherokee at that point. Um and uh, and I was only really able to see the the more collectivist aims of Ostinaco when I saw that this this question of self advancement also didn't look very good for Mai either. That really, when you got down into the the archives and the details about Mai's um, motivations, he also looked like he was fighting for something bigger than just himself. In Mai's case, it was more familial. Uh, he was fighting for um, for his family rights. As a child, he and his family had been ousted from his beloved Raiatea by um, a local um, rival Indigenous group, the Bora Borans. Um, and really, uh, it, it was more illuminating to me to see, or to, it was, I realised that Mai was jumped on board Cook's second Pacific voyage, not because he was some sort of um, Pacific version of Joseph Banks inspired by innate curiosity, but really because he had a larger political, familial, uh, motivation. So both those figures start to look more collectivist when you put them in comparison with each other. Professor Fulagar, can you explain how connections in this section of the collection between these brief Indigenous biographies in turn connect to an Ojibwe Methodist uh, conception of Indian brethren and red brothers so far removed, Maka? and even Māori marine spaces, as well as indigenous dissidents against uh, the marginalization of uh, native potentates in uh, post-1744 Scotland, Native North America, and, and India. In addition to Justin Brooks' contention in this section of the volume, that after 1760, as Highland Scots increasingly enjoyed the same protections and liberties granted to all British subjects, the nature of Native American which he argues came closest to the contemporary term indigenous, and Indian people's attachment to the crown became a subject of imperial inquiry. Just try to take a stab at it. Yes, so that sort of um, summarises all four um, chapters in the section called Connections. So mine came first, and it really was sort of an example of a chapter that looked at two peoples who did not um, ever meet each other, uh, but as uh, for, for the historian, when you put them together, it, it, um, you can start to see new things, and so they were productive in that sense of, of a connection. Um, it was followed by Joshua Reed's um, analysis uh, that, that followed a similar line. It was looking at Maka people and um, Maori people uh, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries and how they both uh, entangled, uh, fought against and, in, and really uh, dealt with British imperialists 
in marine space rather than on landed territories. Um, so in, in some ways, I suppose, structurally, Reed's chapter was a bit like mine. Um, it was really about looking at what uh, comparison can tell the historian anew uh, when, 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 you, when you see that uh, Indigenous peoples, not necessarily connected in their own lives, still come together um, archivally or even uh, philosophically. Um, but then uh, the chapter after that, I believe, is, J- is Justin Brooks. Um, and in some ways, that it, it is a kind of a salutary corrective, that chapter. Uh, it does kind of underscore, again, how much that despite Indigenous um, rebuttals or pushbacks against empire, empire, of course, was still um, making its presence felt on Indigenous peoples everywhere. So he, um, it, it, his, uh, his chapter tells us again about, reminds us again of Bailey's kind of meta-historical definition of Indigenous, which is always inflected by the non-Indigenous. Um, and he really showed how British administrators learned from different Indigenous situations, ad- adjusted their um, policies accordingly, but also um, did push back against Indigenous um, uh, uh, actions too. So um, that, that's a great chapter, um, Illuminating Connections. He looks at three places, uh, Bengal, Native Americans and uh, Scottish Highlanders, um, but does remind us a little bit about how British actions um, would then kind of have the have the ricochet of effect again after it, after they in turn have been affected by Indigenous actions in local places. But it was really interesting to be able to f- conclude the whole volume with Elspeth Martini's chapter about an Ojibwe uh, Methodist missionary um, called by the colonists John Sunday. Um, and he was a, a, a great example, again going back to biography, but a great example of um, after a process of entanglement, here was an Indigenous person who could start making those connections that only later historians could see um, himself in his own lifetime. So he had uh, fought for Native American sovereignty rights, travelled himself to London um, and argued there for what he identified as red brethren elsewhere, red brethren in Africa, red red brethren in the Pacific. Um, He himself was making these interesting connections, which only really 200 years later some some, uh, imperial historians are catching up with. Can you comment on uh, Shino Kanishi's uh, concluding contention that the essays in, in your collection in many ways build on and expand on Bani Banua's Ma's illuminating 2013 article entitled Imperial Literacy and Indigenous Rights, Tracing Trans-Oceanic Circuits of a Modern Discourse. Yes, so we were thrilled to have Shino Kanishi, um, a friend of us both, um, write the afterword to this this collection. She is an Australian Indigenous historian, um, also an expert on the 18th century, uh, based here in Australia, uh, lives over in Western Australia. Um, And she was really the perfect person to be able to draw together these disparate chapters and most importantly kind of thrust um, the, the the. the outcomes of those chapters into the present day and think about how they might um, reflect and react and behave in the present day. Um, Shino was also a good friend of the late Tracy Benavenua Ma, um, to whom we dedicated the entire volume. Uh, Tracy passed at a very early age just last year uh, to the great grief of many scholars in this Australasian region. Um, we had originally invited Tracy to um, uh, give a chapter to this volume and she'd accepted, but unfortunately had to pull out due to her ill health at the last minute. Um, and we were very grief-stricken to hear about her passing last uh, in 2017. So we, um, the least we could do was dedicate the volume to her. And Shino does a beautiful job of realising how much of the uh, chapters in that volume really respond even if they're unwittingly responding to Tracy's great uh, 2013 article about um, imperial literacy. That was a a wonderful kind of pioneering um, 
article in Aboriginal History Journal um, that looked at, in many ways, I suppose, what Joshua Reed and, and, and I were doing in, in our chapters in the volume, which is looking at three different places around the Pacific, not particularly related to each other, but finding interesting parallels about their um, adaptation to imperial incursion and their inventive um, and common ways of fighting back and making their own lives uh, sustained. So um, I, I highly recommend that article to you by Tracy Benavidu-Amar. I believe it's on open access. Um, reading it is a great testament to some of the fantastic scholarship she did in her life. Um, her work continues to have huge resonance amongst Indigenous centred scholars um, in this part of the world and probably elsewhere now. Um, so we were we were thrilled that she you know could draw all those aspects together in the afterword, and 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 end where we really wanted to begin, I suppose, which was in the present day to think about what does this indigenous history do for our lives today, which is really why Mike and I do history at all, is because we are interested in changing. Um, historical perceptions about Indigenous players, about Indigenous possibilities, really about Indigenous futures in our respective settler nations. If possible, can you respond to uh, Daniel Richter's argument in the foreword to the collection that the Seneca orator Sagiawatha reminded past and even present audiences to shift our focus from the British themselves to Indigenous reasons and, and modes attending to them? On the need for that shift in focus, Willowar Benelong, the uh, Indigenous traveller examined in the volume's introduction, surely would have agreed. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, look, I think it's really important when we think about the age of revolution, when we think about the kind of the critical changes that took place uh, at the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century, and from whatever angle we look at it, in terms of political revolution and ideals, uh, in terms of social relations, in terms of the industrial relation, in relationships, um, really we need to, it's, it's critical that we think about the kind of relationships on the ground and the relationships between indigenous peoples and empires that they uh, encountered, um, not just to kind of enrich the history of that period. Um, and I think it's absolutely critical that we do that because Native peoples have been kind of elided out of that story of that turning point to a large degree, but also then to kind of fundamentally rethink our ideas of the age of revolution and particularly, um, you know, thinking about the kind of the, the, the massive rise in, in encounters between indigenous and indigenous peoples and Europeans in general, but particularly the British, um, and make that part of our idea of the age of revolution. Um, and in, so it will enrich our history of that, our histories of those periods. And we, we admit that this is in some sense just a starting point, a kind of a beginning of a conversation about this that needs to be had. But echoing, um, Kate's uh, point, and she's echoing others, um, it's really about understanding the kind of world that we live in today. Indigenous peoples were at the heart of this age of revolution, and we need to acknowledge their role in this critical period. Because I think once we do that, it makes it much, much clearer that we're really still living with and responsible for the legacy of this age of revolution in this modern world. And we've kind of left, this period's left a living legacy of contested relations that continue to resonate in contemporary politics and societies today and are not just going to go away. We're not able to just wish them away. We need to really think about the implications of settler colonialism and indigenous relationships with Europeans from a historical point of view in order to understand a way forward um, in today's world. Yes, I'm not sure I had anything particularly to add to that. Uh, you, you, you asked, um, do I think that Benelong would have agreed that we need to shift away from a, an imperial British focus towards an Indigenous focus? Um, yes, of course, I think in, in, in some situations Benelong would have leapt to have said that. Um, another lesson, though, that, we, that, that can be learned from the history of someone like Benelong, and he's the character that we, uh, that we start the volume with, um, is that, you know, he, he may have 
he, he may have also said, you know, these are not necessarily the questions that we uh, that we want to keep on asking. Um, hopefully, this is this is the kind of volume that will sh- uh, shift us completely away from the idea of one or the other um, and move into new questions about Indigenous history that not necessarily tied so heavily to the imperial presence. Um, they, they are invitations to think about Indigenous histories um, on their own terms. So. Um, if, if that's what our book does, um, then then it really would have succeeded. Excellent. So I have one final question for both of you and uh, Professor Fulgar. Uh, you can go first. Uh, what uh, projects are you currently working on um, or that you can disclose to us? Are you planning on taking a vacation or what? Uh, well, I'm definitely taking a vacation at this the, after this uh, podcast, actually. Um, but um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm really excited that my next book is already with the copy editors, so um, I can start to look forward to that coming out um, midtime next year, probably around about September 2019. And that is a book about three um, parallel lives through the 18th century. It's with Yale University Press. Um, I haven't quite f- uh, finalised a, a title yet so I can't quite spurk it properly but um, but the three lives that I look at um, include the two that I looked at in this volume Ostanako the Cherokee and Mai the Raiatean Islander the third life is Joshua Reynolds who was a British artist and he painted both of them when they came to Britain um, and he's the link between them um, such as such as it is uh, so uh, it, it wasn't really about the, the the three of them together. It was really about how their link made me think about three parallel lives um, through the same period and how they each in their way illuminate the diversity of the 18th century world as well as throw new n- new new lights on um, on what we might think of as the imperial the British imperial force through that century. It wasn't quite as uh, it wasn't quite as what the history books say when you think of it in terms of two very strong um, and um, and active Indigenous peoples and one very ambivalent kind of artist in the middle. Professor McDonnell? Yeah, I just, uh, I'm sort of returning to my roots uh, a little bit and uh, I've got a couple of projects about the American Revolution uh, on the go, one with Claire Caval at, at Monash University about African-American rememberings and invocations and uses of the American Revolution from independence right up to the present day. Uh, and I'm also working on a, a book on Revolutionary War memoirs, I'm really trying to think about kind of the late 18th century as, and the American Revolution in particular as kind of a, another imperial war rather than necessarily a uh, only a founding moment. Um, and the thing that's occupying me a little bit more these days is um, we're just launching uh, invitations to a new three-volume Cambridge History of the American Revolution with my co-editor Sandy Shockett and Marjolaine Kars. And in that, we're hoping to kind of really rethink um, our more standard narrative of the American Revolution and think about... Um, particularly some of the questions raised here in this collection and in this podcast about how um, this revolutionary period uh, might look to all kinds of different peoples, uh, including indigenous peoples. Wow, thanks. Looking forward to uh, all of those projects for both of you. Um, I thank both of you for uh, being on the show today. Um, It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, the collection is Facing Empire, Indigenous Experiences in a Revolutionary Age, um, edited by Professor Fuligar and Professor McDonnell. Um, out this year again from Johns Hopkins University Press. This is uh, Ryan Tripp on behalf of the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. Tune in next time. <laughs>